0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au Now in the Bible we see word pictures that are used to describe something about God or of how man relates to God. So for example... You know, God is described as a, an eagle in the Old Testament and those that wait upon the Lord, their strength shall be renewed uh, as they will soar on the wings of the eagle. And so it gives a certain word picture to understand what that verse is trying to say, something that's taken out of creation. Now, there are other passages that talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, that, that, that he is sweeter than honey to, to help us understand something of that delight that we will have as, as we um, understand and experience and fellowship uh, with God. But even more than that, you know, there are certain institutions that even God has set up that help us understand something about God. You think of the vocation of shepherding, for example, the institution of shepherding and shepherds. Because we understand that concept, we we then understand even better when the Bible says that God is our shepherd and we are his sheep. The institution of marriage would be another example where that one-flesh union between man and woman is meant to then portray that relationship that Christ Jesus has with the church this this intimate connection that Jesus has with his people and marriage serves to help us understand something about that then you think of the concept of family it helps us understand what when the bible says that We who have put our trust in Jesus are part of his family. We understand something of the fact because we've had fathers. Something of what it means that God is a good father and not a bad father. That we understand what it means to be his children as we see children around us. I mean, imagine if none of these things were there. You know, no shepherds, no concept of family. No concept of a father or a mother or children or any of these other things in creation. Just a, just a grey world. It would be difficult for, un, for us to understand who God is. And this morning, we come to a section where we will be looking into the priesthood. The the role of the priesthood. And really this this priesthood also serves as a, a picture of sorts to understand something about God and of how man is to relate to God. You know, last week, we saw of how the author of Hebrews, as he's been encouraging his listeners to continue to persevere in the faith he said that that end destination is this uh, rest of God this new Edenic rest that was there right in the beginning of creation and then he says but you can't just prance into that new Edenic rest that's coming sometime in the future that Jesus will bring Because between you right now and that Edenic rest is this big sword of God's Word. And God's Word is penetrating and it will slice you and dice you and expose you to your very core. Exposing your deepest, darkest secrets. Your very thoughts and intentions will be exposed and no one will be able to escape the sword of God's Word. And so how is anyone able to enter this rest if this sword stands between sword of God's word and his judgment stands between us now and entering into this eternal rest of God? Well, only those who trust in Jesus. And he says the one who is the perfect high priest because for him there is mercy and grace. And it is only those who have trusted in him and are holding on to him can confidently then enter the throne of grace and be confident that they will finally enter that rest. And for others, they should be scared of the sword of God's word that will come down on them and expose them and eternally condemn them. So he just ended there with that concept of Jesus as the high priest of how we should hold on to him now you can think that these are Jewish Christians that this author has written to and they would understand very well what a high priest was because the high priest was something that was very prevalent was a very prevalent office in the life of the Jewish people in fact, even at this time, there was the the temple uh, that was still there before it was destroyed in A.D. 70, and there were still priests around. And so you can you can imagine even the pull for these Jewish Christians to go back to their Jewish ways, because there was this threat of persecution, and persecution was increasing towards Christians, this new religion versus for Judaism, for those who were of the Jewish religion, there was no persecution from them. And these Jewish Christians, therefore, attempted to go back to Judaism. And, you know, and some of those, the the pull towards Judaism was, well, this is something that God has anyway instituted. I mean, there's the grand uh, temple, and there's, this, there's the priesthood and, and the great high priest who wears this fancy robe and a fancy breastplate that everyone knows. And so there's this pull to go back there and the author is saying, no, you know what, the only priest that you should be concerned about is Jesus Christ, the high priest, the ultimate high priest, the
1: final high priest, the only high priest that you will need. But then they might be thinking, but Jesus as high priest? Well,
0: I I don't see Jesus walking around in in this priestly garb with a breastplate and staying there in the temple. I mean, what is the meaning of Jesus as high priest? How, How is he the high priest? And so now the author will go to explain how Jesus is the ultimate high priest and the only high priest that we need. So I've titled this morning's sermon as Jesus, the high priest that we need. And the way that we will look at this passage is under two headings, even as the author explains it this way. First, he reminds us of the qualifications of the high priest in verses 1 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 10, he will tell us Christ's qualifications as the high priest, as he fulfills those qualifications of that high priest, and in, in fact, even exceeds those qualifications, making him the best high priest there ever is. So let's go through what the author now begins to tell us about the qualifications of the high priest. In verses 1 through 4. And really you could say, when you think of the qualifications or the requirements of the high priest, there's three broad categories that you can think of. First he'll talk about the the role or task of the priest, and that's in uh, dealing with the sin of men, representing men and dealing with the sin of men. And then this and there's a couple of other qualifications that he will talk about as we will go through this section. So firstly, he says, talking about the role or the task of the high priest in dealing with the sin of men, this is what he says, verse chapter 5 and verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices. So these high priests, they were chosen from among men to act on behalf of men in relation to God. See, there were certainly a few duties that the high priest had. But the primary purpose of this high priest was this in his office was to deal with the problem of sin, and how a sinful being can approach a holy God and come into his presence and can be made right with God. So what these high priests were, they were representatives. They were representatives or advocates for the sinful people. They were going to represent these people as a human being before God. And so one of the things that you think of in terms of the role is, first of all, this person had to be a human being. This person couldn't be an angel. Why? Because man sinned against God. Man disobeyed God. And therefore it had to be a man that had to go before God and make it right and bridge that gap that was there between man and God. And so the person had to be a man, had to be chosen from men and appointed on their behalf in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, offer these sacrifices for sin. See, under the Old Covenant, if a person sinned and they felt the guilt of their sin, they couldn't just say, oh, you know what, I'm just going to offer a a little sacrifice in my home. And that's the end of it. And I'll just offer it to God. No, they couldn't do that. They would have to go to the temple and they would have to go to the priest. And it was a priest who, who would offer the animal on their
1: behalf. They couldn't do it by themselves. And so this was the the role of the priest, to represent men and to deal with the
0: sin of men. Now there is a second qualification that's given. And that's that this this high priest was somebody who should have been able to sympathize with the people. Look at verse 2 and verse 3. It says, and he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And then because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Now it says there that he he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. The the word gently there, it's very closely related to the word sympathize, or to be sympathetic. But it's a little bit more nuanced in that he he was meant to be measured in his emotions. There's a certain kind of patience, a certain kind of restraint, meaning that he wasn't quick-tempered, that he wouldn't easily get frustrated with sinners when they went astray. So imagine if if these people, because of, their, because of the guilt of their sin, they're bringing these sacrifices and you had a priest here who was impatient and just arrogant and angry with these people. You know, they, they wouldn't be able to bring these sacrifices. No, he had to be gentle with them. He had to be measured with them. And there's a sense in which on the one side, he's being, he had to be patient and gentle, but on the other side, he... He was not somebody who was indifferent to sin. See, he understood the seriousness of sin, but at the same time, he wasn't a bully towards the people. He was gentle with them while understanding the seriousness of sin. And it says sins for people who commit their sins in ignorance, so sins that they didn't know they were committing, and sins for those who are going astray from God's law. I mean, this is not talking about willful, outright rebellion. That's why he's not meant to be indifferent to sin, but he's still meant to be gentle with the people when they come to offer these guilt offerings to the Lord. And why is he able to deal with them so gently or so patiently? Because he himself is beset with the same weakness. Because he himself sins. So he understands, well, I I stand in that same place, just as these people. I'm, I'm one with these people. And so therefore, it caused him, it was meant to ideally cause him to be gentle and patient and sympathetic towards the people who would come with the sacrifice offerings. And you can understand even, as the priest was being gentle with the people as they brought the offerings to the Lord, that it was a reminder again, you know, through the priest, that God will deal with you gently if you come to Him. Because there's a sense in which the priest was also showing something of the character of God to the people at the time. What is it that makes a man harsh and judgmental towards others? It's a failure to recognize that he himself is sinful and weak. And so this is what the high priest was supposed to recognize and therefore deal gently and sympathetically with the people. There's a third requirement that you see here, and that's in verse 4.
1: And that is that he also had to be appointed by God. It says, and no one takes this honor for himself,
0: but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. See, not everyone could become a high priest. You know, you can wake up one morning and think, oh, you know what? I seem like a good guy. You know, I, 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 I really want to be this high priest guy. So, you know, I, I'm just going to put my hand up and say, hey, I, I, I want to be a high priest. It didn't work like that. No, this was the most holy office in Israel. And the person in this office had to be appointed by God himself. It is God who takes the initiative to appoint this person. This is the God who appoints and calls and chooses this person. It's not something that anyone and everyone could do. It is somebody who is specifically called by God. And of course, knowing that he is called by God also keeps him humble, right? Because this was none of him. Not because he was somebody great. In fact, he's weak and which is why he had to offer sacrifices for himself just as he had to offer sacrifices for the people as well. So he is a weak person and the fact that he's appointed by God was no place for pride for this person. He was meant to carry out the responsibilities of service for the people, to represent the people to God. And he was meant to do that tirelessly day in and day out. You know, in fact, in the Bible, when you think of people who've tried to take on the responsibility of the priest without being appointed by God, they were met with judgment. I mean, you think of um, the story of King Saul in the Old Testament. You know, he takes upon himself to offer sacrifice, which is the role of the priest. And then God's judgment came on Saul as a result. And it was the beginning of the end for King Saul. Then there's King Uzziah, who for the most bit was a good king. But there is this one instance, as king, he perform these priestly duties and as soon as he did that he was struck with leprosy see these these priests couldn't just be any man either they were specifically appointed by God and they had to come from the line of Aaron Moses' brother so from the tribe of levi and then specifically through Aaron and everyone who was only the children of Aaron could then also be high priests. No, not from any other tribe and not through any other man. That was the condition and that was the specific appointment of God for this high priest. So that's, the author is reminding, so this is the qualifications of the high priest. And the, so this priesthood of Israel. It would be a reminder to the people that the sin and disobedience created a separation between them and God. It would be a reminder, this priesthood, that they cannot approach God on their own terms. That somebody who is specifically appointed by God had to go in between them and God and offer sacrifices in their place so that they can be brought back to God and be made right with God. This is what the priesthood would be reminding in the people of Israel. And so when you think about it, this priesthood, You know, really right from Old Testament times, in different ways, God has had pictures of the kind of God that he is. And this priesthood was another way in which it was showing of how God is a rescuing and a redeeming God. See, because the priest, when he offered the sacrifice, and as a high priest, as he went to the Holy of Holies, that is not what made God merciful to the people. No, the very fact that the priesthood existed, and the very fact that the God appointed a specific person to do this, shows that God was a merciful God. That he was a redeeming God. That he was a God who wanted to reconcile sinners to himself through his appointed man, a high priest, a representative of these
1: sinful people. And so this priesthood really is a picture of
0: how merciful and how redeeming God is.
1: It served as a picture of sorts in that way now you might think okay so
0: so it served as a picture this way but we also know that there were some flaws with this right because the high priests themselves were sinful and so they had to offer sacrifices and the priest would die and there'd be another one and another one another one so it was temporal and so now the author is going to say Christ Jesus, he actually fulfills the qualifications of the high priest, but in a much better way and in a greater way, and he is the greatest high priest there is and the only one that you need. And so now he talks about Christ's qualifications as the high priest in verses 5 through 10. So in verse 5 he says, So also... Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's the author's point here? Is that Jesus also, like the other human high priest's, He didn't exalt himself. He didn't appoint himself as the high priest. It was God the Father who appointed him to the office of the high priest. And to explain that, the author quotes then from two Psalms to prove his point. First he quotes from Psalm 2 and verse 7. And that is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. If you remember, the author has already quoted this verse in chapter 1 when he was trying to establish Jesus' superiority over the angels. Where he said, No angel was given this privilege of being called a son and be in this unique relationship with God. That's what he said in chapter 1. And really, just to refresh your memory of the context of Psalm 2 7, where You know, God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This was pointing forward to the enthronement or the crowning of the Davidic king, the the Messiah who would come. And this was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. When the eternal son of God, he became incarnate, coming from the line of King David. Obviously, if he wasn't a human being, he couldn't come from the line of David and be this Messiah king. And as fully God and as fully man, he completed his task on earth, he died on the cross, and then he was raised to life, he ascended into heaven, and Jesus, as the God-man, was publicly and officially appointed by God, the Father, when God the Father said to him, today I have begotten you, you are my son, in the sense, you are my messianic son the eternal King, and I crown you today and exalt you today as the Messiah. And after that, Jesus was given the seat at the right hand of the Father. We've seen some of that in chapter 1 already. But then the author says, "So, so you know that, that this is the... The Messiah, the, the crowning of the Messiah, that's what it's talking about, that you are my son, today I have begotten you, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. But then the author also quotes from Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110 is another messianic psalm. In fact, Psalm 110, one, it starts off with, The Lord, that's talking about God, says to my Lord, That's David's Lord, because David is the one who wrote Psalm 110. So the Lord, i.e. God, says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. Does that sound familiar? Until I make your enemies your footstool. So the question is, who is David's Lord here? This is talking about the Messiah again, when he is enthroned and then he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Okay, so... Now look down at Psalm 110 and verse 6. Notice what else the Lord tells about David's Lord or David's Messiah. And this is what the author of Hebrews quotes. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or in other words, the one appointed and crowned as the Davidic Messiah is also appointed to be a priest forever what the author of Hebrews is trying to help us understand is that the Messiah who we know is Jesus is not only appointed as the eternal king but also as the eternal high priest because that is what a Messiah was he wasn't just a king he was also a priest a king priest or a royal priest Now here's the problem, to be the king, the Messiah had to come from David's line, and you trace back David, David comes from the tribe of Judah, but to be a priest from Aaron's line, that line came from the tribe of Levi. So two different tribes when you think, okay, Davidic king comes from the tribe of Judah. The Aaronic priesthood came from the tribe of Levi. There's a problem there. But that's why then it says the Messiah who is, who is eternal king and eternal priest, this eternal priest was a Melchizedekian priest. You know, we'll look at Melchizedekian in more in detail in Hebrews 7. But one thing I will say is this that Melchizedek was also a king priest. And he was before the Aaronic priestly line that was set up. He was of a different order of priesthood than the the priesthood of Aaron. So what's the point that the author is trying to make here? What he's saying is that Jesus is qualified to be the high priest because he has truly been appointed by God. Because he is the Messiah who is crowned. And by the way, the Messiah who is crowned is not just eternal king, but he's eternal priest forever. You know, there are a couple of things here about Jesus' appointment as high priest where this appointment in itself m- makes it more superior than all the other appointments of high priests. Firstly, Jesus when he's appointed as the Messiah, he's declared by God the Father as my son, my messianic son. And that, that's God's special care and love and attention would be him, And we saw again all of that in Hebrews 1, the, the terminology of my son. That's what God is saying there, that he had a unique relationship with God the Father that no one else had. And so essentially when you think about it, no other, pri- no other high priest has ever had this kind of special relationship with God the Father. With this special kind of love and care shown to him. This intimate relationship that he had with God the Father. So that's one thing that makes the appointment of this high priest, Jesus' high priest, even more superior. Second thing about Jesus' appointment that makes it superior than other priests is that he is appointed as priest forever. You know, all the other priests... They die and then they get replaced. But Jesus, the son of God who lives forever, he is appointed as high priest forever. I mean, I I want you to just think about this. You know, it's a simple truth, but it just struck me so hard this, this past week. Jesus, as God incarnate, will forever be a man. There will never be a time now when Jesus will strip off his humanity saying, okay, I was on earth, I did my bit now I'm going to take off my humanity I'll just continue to be the eternal son. No, for the rest of eternity he will be fully God and fully man. And that means both now in heaven and forevermore when Jesus returns to make a new world that Jesus as a man will be our high priest representing us to God forever. He will always be our high priest. But not only is Jesus qualified because he's appointed by God to be the high priest... But he's also qualified because he's a man who is able to sympathize with his people. That's the second qualification to be a high priest that we saw. And really, what the author is going to elaborate here is just what we've seen last week already, that he's a high priest who's able to sympathize with us because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Look at what the author says, verse 7. In the days of his flesh... What does that mean? That's emphasizing the the humanity of Jesus as he lived on earth. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications. Now, these two words prayers, yeah, that's what we would normally think of prayers, you know, praying to God, making requests before God. But the word here translated as supplications. This word is used only here in the New Testament. It's not a word that we would normally use to say we're making petitions. You know, our supplications are petitions. No, this word has more the idea of when you're experiencing the most intense pressure from something, that you are coming to your wit's end And you're desperately and frantically petitioning before God. It's that sort of idea. And I think that might be the reason why it's only used once. Because human beings are never that frantic and experience that much of pressure where they're at their wit's end almost going mad and petitioning before God. We don't normally go through this kind of supplications because we usually buckle under that kind of pressure, whatever pressure it is that we feel. But Jesus is one who never gave in. It's talking about when Jesus was bearing up under intense pressure and frantically making supplications to God. And the text also adds, so prayers and these frantic supplications... And text also adds, along with loud cries, not not just little cries, loud cries, where everyone can hear you and tears flowing down to him who was able to save him from death. You know, maybe there were other instances, you know, where many instances where Jesus was under this kind of intense pressure and where he he was loudly wailing and crying and frantically petitioning before the Lord. But one scripture that records for us clearly this kind of experience that Jesus is going through is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And where the gar- that, that picture in Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is undergoing, experiencing an intense pressure We find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's the night before he is going to be crucified. So all that the cross entails, the shadow of that, is just right there. Now we read from Luke's Gospel, but I want to turn your attention just to Mark's Gospel of the same account. In
1: Mark 14, verses 33 to 36. You know, in Mark 14 and verse 33, it says,
0: Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. I mean, that should make us, you know, that should make us really straighten our backs and really want to listen what's going on here. And then the very next verse, verse 34,
1: Mark 14. Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Meaning he was experiencing so much anguish
0: that it had the potential to kill him. You know, for any other normal human being, they would have gone insane. They would have gone mad.
1: If not died from the kind of severe anguish that he was experiencing. And then Mark 14, verse 35 to 36, Mark
0: says he's so anguished, so full of anguish, that he literally falls to the ground. And the tense of the verb in the original, it's like he's continuing to stumble and fall. Because he's under so much of anguish. And he prays. And this is what he says, Mark 14, 35 and 36. And going a little further... He fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this
1: cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And Luke's
0: gospel that we read this morning also adds that he was
1: so full of anguish that he started sweating drops of blood. Now here's the question.
0: Why is Jesus so full of anguish and so troubled? I mean, is he so scared of physical death on that cross? And he's praying, oh, p- please spare me from that torture and that death on the cross? No. No. See, Jesus is praying that the cup would be removed from him. The cup that the prophets of old in the Old Testament talked about, which was the cup of God's wrath and judgment. Here's a few references. Isaiah 51, 17, where it talks about the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, where it talks about the cup of the wine of wrath. It's like this cup is full of wine and that wine representing the wrath of God. Ezekiel 23, 33, pardon me, where it says, talks about the cup of horror and desolation. So Jesus, he's in severe distress praying that this cup of God's wrath that he has to drink for the sin of his people, please, if it is possible, remove this cup from me.
1: And you can imagine, you know, the incarnate Son of God, who has only known the perfect love of God, the perfect
0: favor of God, the perfect communion with God, is now going to be separated and forsaken by his Father. He was going to be cursed and damned by God. He was going to experience the second death. Why? For your sake and my sake.
1: not because of him. And you know, we need to understand
0: why Jesus, as a holy human being, he must pray to be spared from God's wrath. He must pray this way if he's a holy human being. And let me explain why. See, because it would be inappropriate for the incarnate son clothed in humanity to desire anything else than the smile of God and the ongoing fellowship with him. It would be completely inappropriate. It would not be a natural desire for the incarnate son to desire to be damned and forsaken by his heavenly father. To naturally have that desire, as one theologian put it, would be an unholy desire. See, this
1: is why Jesus is so much in anguish and so deeply distressed. And this is the greatest temptation that Jesus has ever faced. And he's feeling the intense pull of
0: it. And you can see this is, this is not sinful. This is because of his dear love for his Lord. He wants the smile of God. The communion with God. And so it's a holy desire that he has. And yet you see why it's an intense temptation for him. Because that is not the will of the Father. You know really, it was uh, Sinclair Ferguson quite a few years ago now. In a little tiny book that made me understand this. Let me just quote from him. This is what he says Quote here, as in Jesus asking to be spared. Jesus is called upon to do what is utterly unnatural. Indeed, from one perspective, repugnant to the holiness of the humanity that he has assumed. Yet, if we are to be saved, Jesus, who can, who, can be, who can never naturally will to be separated from the smile of God, must bow his holy will to the Father's will as the mediator. Close quote. Three times in Mark's gospel, it says... That Jesus would ask to take the cup away from him, the cup of God's wrath. And three times he would end his desperate, frantic supplication with yet not I will, but what you will. So even under the most intense anguish and the most intense temptation, even out of a natural love for God the Father, Jesus didn't break and sin. He
1: submitted His holy human will to the will of God the Father. And the text says,
0: He was heard because of his reverence. Meaning, Jesus' prayer was answered because
1: he was totally submitted to the Father's will. And Jesus' prayer was answered according to God the Father's will, where he was saved out of death in the resurrection ultimately. What does this teach us? Well, this is telling us that Jesus understands the sufferings that we go through. In fact, he has suffered more than you and I will ever suffer.
0: You say, why? Because none of us will ever have to
1: face drinking the wrath of God for the sake of others. And yet, even in those intense moments of suffering and temptation, Jesus did not give in.
0: And so, Jesus is able to sympathize with you when you go through
1: trials and temptation. And the author adds this concession in verse 8, where he says, and although he was a son,
0: he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now this is not saying that Jesus at one point was disobedient and then he learned to be obedient through suffering. No, it's saying that although as eternal son of God, he had always perfectly obeyed the father. Jesus as a human being experientially now learned what it means to obey God
1: in the midst of great suffering. And here's the thing, God the incarnate son, he
0: voluntarily endured all this suffering that he went through in his earthly life, voluntarily. You know, none of us would ever volunteer to suffer and even go through such horrific agony for the sake of others. We couldn't. We would just be crushed. But Jesus of his own accord entered into suffering to learn obedience as a man even
1: though he had no need to learn this way as eternal son of God. And here's the wonderful thing about what Jesus has done. See all the previous priests,
0: they were able to empathize and sympathize with their people. Why? Because they were weak and sinful. Right, That's what the author said at the beginning. But Jesus, on the other hand, as a man, he had to learn obedience through suffering, even suffering to the nth degree. And he never sinned, unlike all the other priests. Why did he do this? Well, here's one answer so that he could perfectly understand what it means to suffer and what it means to obey, even when it is so difficult as a man. Why?
1: So that then Jesus would be able to sympathize with us perfectly in our suffering. That he would understand how difficult it is to go through trials and still
0: be faithful to the Lord. And this was unlike all the other priests who failed and disobeyed at different times. In fact, even their empathy and their sympathy would never be perfect because they were sinful themselves. And here's perfect sympathy and perfect understanding come
1: because Jesus has experientially learnt obedience through suffering.
0: And the result of Jesus' obedience Even to the point of death, and here we come to the last bit, the task that is given, the
1: qualification of the task of the priest, verses 9 and 10, and says, and being made perfect,
0: he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Being made perfect, meaning having completed his goal. Having been perfected, so to speak, where he's completed his God-given task. It says that now he's designated or given the title
1: as high priest forever. And as a result now, Jesus has become the source of eternal salvation
0: to all who Obey Him. See, this was a completed job. All the other priests, it was incomplete because they themselves were sinful and they would die. Uh, simple, they couldn't bring the perfect sacrifice. None of those things. But Jesus completed His job perfectly unlike all other priests and became the source of salvation for all who would trust and obey Him. Eternally bringing us to God eternally reconciling us to God as what is the job of a high priest, which every other high priest failed in. Here's how one commentator put it, quote, His obedience, that's Jesus' obedience, is the reason why we have hope in his representation. He did not fall or waver or give up. He was obedient. He remained sinless And that meant that he could be a sacrifice on our behalf instead of having to pay for his own sins. And his righteousness and his obedience and his faithfulness
1: are credited to us when we trust in him. Close quote. What a glorious thing that Jesus
0: is indeed our high priest. You know, I wonder if there's anyone here who's not a Christian. See, the Bible says that our sins have made a chasm or separated us from the God of life, the God who's good and holy and righteous. So what that means is that if we don't deal with our sin, if our sins are not dealt with, what is coming our way is not eternal salvation. What is coming our way is eternal condemnation the eternal wrath of God. So that means the greatest need for mankind is eternal salvation by God from the eternal wrath of God that is coming. And what that means is, friend, that you need someone who will go in between you and God. Somebody who will who is a man who can represent you but can represent you perfectly and can deal with the issue of your sin and reconcile you to God and that only person that we find in scripture is Jesus Christ and it is
1: only through him that you can be reconciled to him you see the eternal son of God came into this world
0: And became a man with the name Jesus. And he suffered even to the point of death, yet he never sinned. And he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinful people like you and me. And he bore the wrath of God on himself. Where he was forsaken and separated from the Father that he loved so much. So that all who would trust in him would be forgiven of their sins and could be Brought into right relationship with God. Friend, if you are here this morning, I would ask you, plead with you even, to turn to Jesus and trust in Him. And if you'd like to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, please come and talk to me or Donnie or any of the members of this church and they will be happy to talk to you about Jesus. But here's the thing you need to realize. No priest of Aaron's line could do this for you. No angel sent from heaven could do this for you. Only Jesus of Nazareth, fully qualified and competent to serve as our high priest, could obtain for us eternal, unending, everlasting, never to be
1: reversed or overturned salvation. That's a quote, by the way, from someone else. But for those of us who are Believers who have fully put their trust in Jesus.
0: Here's what I want to tell you. Perhaps you're facing challenges and mountains and hard things in your life. There's temptations and trials coming your way and you feel like you're out of your depth. What do you do? Go to Jesus, your high priest. Hold on to him. He is your representative he is he understands what you are going through way more than you realize and he will give you mercy when you fail and he will give you the strength to continue to persevere in the faith and obey him so that you can finally enter his rest Jesus alone is
1: our hope in life and death let's pray together Father, we thank you that for pictures that you give us,
0: concepts, theological concepts that you develop over time in history so that we can understand of how we are to relate to you. We thank you for the concept of a high priest, a go-in-between sinful man and a holy God. And we thank you that ultimately, All the previous high priests simply pointed to the ultimate and final high priest that we need, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would find our hope and our all in him and keep coming to him as we go through the trials and temptations and the difficulties of his life to find mercy and grace to continue to persevere in the faith. Lord, please bless this word to us and help us to live
1: for your glory and to make much of Jesus. And in his name we pray all these things. Amen.